Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Silmarillion Film Project. I am Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor. Missing Dave Kale, my co-host this week so far. He might be able to join us later, but he was kept away by a family conflict today. But we do have Marie and Nick from our writer's room, which is definitely for the best today, because today is an exciting transition in Silm Film Season 6, which is always exciting, um, because... Uh, we are transitioning into discussing actual uh, scripts and outlines of our episodes, having sorted out most of the big picture problems and figuring, figuring, you know, uh, uh, figuring, having figured out where we're headed from here. We now uh, are uh, ready to actually go through and make a story uh, and discuss the story that we've made, and it's pretty exciting. Big fan of. Uh, episode one script. So looking forward to talking about that. Before we get started, let's uh, 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 do some quick announcements. Mythmoot, of course, is coming up. That's the biggest thing. Next week, June 23rd through 26th uh, is Mythmoot. You can still sign up to attend through Moot Hub. That is to attend remotely. Um, it's going to be a fully hybrid experience as fully as we can make it. We can't promise an identical experience, of course, for those who are not with us, but we do everything that we can uh, to involve the folks who are attending remotely. And if you sign up for Moot Hub uh, and attend remotely, you will also get access to our recorded archives of the entire thing. So that means you can even see sessions that you missed, you know, because you can only be in one place at a time and all that kind of thing. Uh, so that is um, uh, uh, that's the, the the biggest thing coming up. Uh, uh, coming up right away. We do have a, uh, a Spanish Conversation Club meeting uh, on the 21st. Pilar Barrera is going to be teaching a conversation club for uh, uh, in Spanish uh, in our clubs program. Uh, that's going to be really cool on the 21st. You can find uh, all these things on our events page. Regional Moots coming up. We have five regional moots already planned and scheduled and uh, with registration open. Buckeye Moot, our first ever moot in Ohio, coming up soon in Cincinnati on the 30th of July. Mountain Moot, going to Denver again, our first ever Mountain Moot in Denver on the 24th of September. Um, Middle Moot, that's like our fifth or sixth, I think it's our sixth actually, Middle Moot. Um, uh, Middle Moot is actually the very first ever regional moot we had was Middle Moot. Uh, so we're going to be back in Kansas City on October 8th. Um, we've, we're going, we got SoCal Moot. This will be our third SoCal Moot down in Carlsbad, California on November 5th. And then the, for the first time ever, we're going to Australia. We're having Oz Moot uh, on, in January. Um, so, uh, and one other that is almost confirmed, uh, that should be confirmed, I hope within the next week. And this actually represents, a, we've had a little bit of, of a change, a bit of an adjustment. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's going to be a really cool change. Um, so we're having New England Moot. We're, we've bumped it up a week. October 22nd was the date that we had before. It's now going to be on the 15th of October. And it's going to be in Derry, New Hampshire instead of Durham, New Hampshire. But here's what that means. We're, we're going to be hosting New England Moot um, at a video studio. Like, we're going to be, like, sitting in chairs 
in on the filming set with like a 50 foot video screen surrounding us on three sides. It's going to be amazing. So Studio Lab uh, in Derry, New Hampshire is hosting New England Moot uh, and they're excited to do some really fun things. So yeah, we're going to like people going to be able to give presentations with like 3D video backgrounds and stuff. It's going to be kind of amazing. Uh, so anyway, it, it, it should be it should be a lot of fun. So uh, there's an excitement going on with New England Moot. Uh, so the shift of date, definitely, definitely worth while so there we are october 15th so that's what is uh there's that's uh what is uh coming up absolutely yeah nick that's exactly right coming from the future set of film film and needless to say i've been thinking about that a lot (laughs) standing there in an actual video studio and uh thinking about our uh imaginary and theoretical production but anyway let us get back to the imaginary and theoretical production so Season six, episode one. So, um, Marie, any like general notes that you want to make about the like sort of notes that you have or like questions that you had or anything like that um, for, you know, on episode one script before we kind of get going into some of the details? Um, I would say the biggest challenge with this one is that there's not one clear storyline that we're telling Mm-hmm. Nor is it going to be obvious to the audience that this is the Baron and Luthien season. Right. Because they're not centrally involved in anything in this at this point. So it feels like we're building up for a different story than we're right. actually building up for with the season. So the challenge was to do that without making it a bait and switch, but also right. try to tell a cohesive story, but also actually do make it the introduction to the Baron and Luthien season. So it's it's um trying to do a lot of things at once yeah possibly yeah, I, not successfully on all counts <laughs> i liked it i like so here's what i like yeah, but about you know what i do I, I know it's coming i know it's coming yeah exactly <laughs> there were several places where knowing what's coming i was able to you know uh, I, I was able to kind of appreciate the things that were being set up right um like of course the lines about you know baron and baron's future right and also even the reference to baron's mom that was that was a nice little plant there i like that um actually really the whole um business about their relationship with um uh, uh with the 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 holodeen right um um that's something that actually is kind of easy to miss, really. Um, even from the main text, I mean, that like the that there is a sense in which the alternative for the outlaws, the there are alternative to saying in Doriath is going down, you know, to Brethil. Um, that I think you can kind of work out. It's, the, the narrative doesn't state that. Like we don't, we don't, we don't get that explicitly referred to in the, uh, you know, like we don't know that, like their hearts are yearning to go to Brethel and rejoin their families. Like that's not, that's not alluded to as an explicit element of the, of the story in the, uh, in the text. But I really liked that. I mean, that, that seemed um, really important. And of course I did like how you were setting up Morwen and Rion uh, as well, though not by name explicitly, um, which I think by the way, just as well, because we don't need people thinking they need to remember their names yet. <laughs> right. Like it's a little early for that. Um, 
but uh, but I think that's uh, I think that's that's uh, that w- that was still pretty fun. Anyway, I, I really like the setup of that. But here now I'm digressing and getting into details. Um, so that that was one place, of course, in which I could see things coming later on. Um, the scene with Dairon I thought was really well done in setting up you know Luthien and Luthien's future as well. So there there were a bunch of places where you could kind of see um, see things. Coming, obviously, Kel Gorman Kurofin, um, you know, we're setting things, setting things up in some interesting ways. But here's the thing. Here's my, my general response to what you were just saying, Marie, is that I definitely did not get the impression. I, so on the one hand, I see what you mean, that anyone who knew nothing at all would not really be able to guess where this season was going after this first episode. I mean, th- that certainly seems seems true. However... I agree. I think you succeeded in not making it a bait and switch. Like it did not seem to me to set up. Like there were a bunch of potential plot lines, right? So like if if we play the game, what would somebody who knew nothing about Tolkien at all guess season six was about after episode one, right? Uh, Candidates would be, um, well, like, I guess reestablishing the siege, right? So you've got like Mythros, like what do the Mythros scene and the, you know, the Fingon and Finrod scenes have in common, right? Is some kind of rebuilding. Mm. Maybe you can, maybe they might think, well, perhaps we're kind of folding the, uh, the Nagrod stuff into there as well, right? Building mm. dwarf allies and whatever. Okay. So maybe that's, uh, and then of course, everyone's thinking about Doriath and, and, um, Thingol, his pros and cons as an ally, <laughs> right? And all that kind of thing. There's another thing that comes up in more than one scene. So, you know, there's a general sense that recovering from the destruction of the battle, recovering explicitly in the Mithro scene, right? But even implicitly in other places, like the conversation between Fingon and Finrod at the very beginning, right, was one place where we can see that. Um, so I would think, like, that has to would have to be the major guess, right? That it's going to be about like some kind, maybe some kind of counter strike against the you know like after you know this is going to be like the you know the Noldor strike back season essentially, right? After the Dagor Bragalak d- disaster at the end of season five, um, and the thing is, if people did think that, they're not wrong. Right? That is exactly what this season about. It's just that the Counter-Strike is not going to look like they would guess at the beginning. So that seems to me a perfectly legitimate kind of bait-and-switch to do, right? Um, the thing that actually I think you did really well to avoid, because it seems to me that those two two of the... well. Two of the like challenges or dangers that you were talking about seem to me potentially to... Um, I don't know. I don't sort of lay traps for each other. That is the problem of not having a central character and the problem of um, trying to avoid a bait and switch, right? Um, If you had... I think you steered very carefully between those two things. Had you succumbed to the temptation to try to avoid the there's no central character problem, right? And given us a clear through-line character... That would have been more of a bait and switch, right? Because then we would have been prepared, like, okay, this is going to be the season about Fingon or whatever, right? Or Gilgalad or whoever, you know, whatever it was. Um, and it's it's not going to be. I mean, the two protagonists of this season, not only were in only a couple of scenes, Luthien in one, uh, Baron in like three, maybe, right? Two in which he had speaking roles, I think, right? Um, very relatively minor speaking roles. 
so not only were they in a very small number of scenes, um, they were they were minor characters in those scenes. Uh, you know, as, as it was. So, um, so there's no way anyone would guess again, not knowing, um, who the protagonists of the season were going to turn out to be. Um, but, uh, but, but at the same time, I don't think anyone is going to be emerging from episode one saying, Oh, I can't wait for this big, you know, Fingen season that is coming. Right. Um, because he's, he would be one of my candidates in a in one sense, right? You know, the whole like the new high king, and we're going to reestablish the the siege, and um, you know, so surely, uh, you know, the story of like Fingon trying to establish an alliance with Thingol, and then Mithros reestablishing things, and them trying to connect with each other—that's going to be the main story, right? Um, so maybe it's going to be Fingon, or or possibly Mithros, right? You know, dark horse candidate. It's going to be Thingol, right? But but anyway, it's going to like that's 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 surely that that would have been my guess as for where this season was headed after episode one, if I knew if I didn't know anything. Um, but there was not enough evidence given to support any. Like Mithros is in one scene, Fingon is in one scene, right? <laughs> Thingol doesn't appear. Well, briefly, he appears in one scene too, right? Um, though he's not the central focus of that scene. Uh, so anyway, I, I, that, again, I, th- I think it did a good, whereas if you, if you tried to avoid the problem of having no central character or central storyline of the, you know, single storyline of this, um, um, uh, of this episode, I think it would have created more problems than it, than it solved. So I thought that that was actually, uh, handled really well. First, before we uh, proceed, let's make sure that people know where to find the script if they want to read it. Let's let's make sure that we do that. So you have to go to the forum. So if we go, uh, let's see. I think it's on. Should be able to get a. Yeah, there it is. Um, so uh, forums.signumuniversity.org. This is the actual copy of the script that I have here. Um, uh, forums.signumuniversity.org. Um, the link is here, but if people want to navigate to it, they go to forums.signumuniversity.org, go to Silm Film, and then Season 6, right? And then there's a scripts, uh, scripts. folder. Oh, so scripts. It's, so okay. it's Silm Film, Scripts, Season 6, and then there's a thread for Episode 1 that has We're Back in the title, if you're okay. looking for it. Okay. And the one of the last posts on that should be a PDF of what you're looking at. Okay, so that's in that thread. You'll see the dis- d- sort of discussion of the script, mm-hmm. and then the posting of the actual script itself. Okay, Correct. cool, Correct. awesome. So if people also, want to find this, yeah. Also, it's important in case anybody didn't pick up from context clues that Marie wrote the script. That's right. Oh, yeah. That's right. <clears throat> yeah. Um, with with uh, some just, help, right? <laughs> just just in, just to just to make things very clear. So if it's terrible, it's her fault. Um, and if it's awesome, then it's the it's the fault of the uh, team working together. Um, <laughs> exactly, exactly. There were uh, a lot of people contributed to the script discussion to plan the episode, and then um, in the editing process to improve the script before you get to see it. Yeah. Oh, by the way, in my favorite line in the whole script was. The dragon will keep. I was like, "Oh, that's that's yeah. good." Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, he will, and that's the problem. But we yeah. can avoid that problem anyway. Yeah, no, I was, I was, I, 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 uh, I, I definitely uh, yeah. kind of LOL'd when I got to that line. That was good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it was not exactly designed to be a fully comedic moment. But I thought it yeah. was, especially like with the the kind of. 
sardonic edge that Mythros has through that whole scene, I, I, I kind of I kind of liked it uh, in that way. Yeah, because he's yeah. he's he's really kind of aggravated with them. Yes, he doesn't yes. come right out and say it, but he's very clearly not a happy camper. Mythros um, was really restrained. <laughs> like, yeah. Really restrained yes. uh, in that scene. I kept expecting him to lose it, but he never did. Uh, well, that seems to be like kind of the direction the character's been going for us. Yes. Like, he lets it all out in battle, but when when mm-hmm. he's not actively engaged in slaying, he's right. very, like, he's got a very tight lid on, on himself. Um for now. Speaking yeah. <laughs> Speaking of Mythros, um, I think that one of the things that the script does pretty effectively is um, the the first couple of episodes of the season really are a handoff from mm. the kind of broader narrative of um, of the stories that we've been telling to these this much smaller world, and I yeah. think that um, the handoff specifically to Baron. That mm-hmm. kind of takes place over over this episode and the next one uh, is done very effectively in in the script. So, yeah, I th- it is interesting. Um, it, even the way in which the sort of larger big picture stuff we get in episode one about the like military and political mm-hmm. situation in in Beleriand, um, the way that it keeps kind of coming back to Dorthonian, right when Dorthonian is lost, and that's a problem, but. Uh, um, Really, you can see how that, um, you know, the, the kind of black hole in the middle of Beleriand there, right, uh, that is uh, Dorthonian at this point, um, is kind of ready for the spotlight there, right? Um, and uh, I thought that was, I thought that was cool. So, okay, um, let's then dive in and talk about uh, the episode uh, in order here. So we start off um, kind of loved the opening um i was i think of the things that surprised me um and i am never quite sure whether i'm being surprised because you guys have added something that we didn't talk about or whether i'm being surprised because i've so completely forgotten what we did talk about that it's like bursting upon me like a new thing but i was surprised by namo's presence we didn't that was a that was a new thing right yeah okay yeah. Um, no, that's not new. It's not new? <laughs> that no? was totally... No. For one thing, it was, I think, explicitly your idea. <laughs> Probably was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, was it my idea? Okay. See, there we go. There we go. Um, there is something very particular about this scene that I want to I want to pick out, and it's a detail. I called it out in, in our comments that you can't see in, in that document there. Um, there's a bit... After the the first paragraph, there's a bit where um, it says the camera narrows to a single point surrounded by darkness and then fades. Then it fades out and cuts to the camera's eye, blinks back open, and blah, 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 blah. Now, yeah. typically, in a regular script, you would not see details like that. Um, right. is that is not a a feature that you would see on a script that hadn't had the uh the dp as uh as uh dr dr uh parks would t- it would say the director of photography go over it right? right because that's that's their job right um but in film film we're not doing shooting scripts we don't have a dp and so 
we will occasionally, very occasionally and very sparingly in situations where it's a part of the story, right? do camera direction. Right. It's not the way that you typically handle that in, in a, uh, a script prior to the DP looking at it, but it is a, a feature of film film scripts specifically. Just right. to call that out. On account of having no photography to direct. So yes. Um, right. No. And, and clearly it was important here because the question was, how do we handle this shift to, how do we, how do we provide the cues to the viewer that they're seeing the spirit world, right? That they're seeing, uh, you know, uh, they're seeing the same scene from the other side, right? And I really liked the death of the human scout as the transition. The fact that it was a human was particularly interesting, I thought. Um, um, not to mention the fact that it seems also to kind of fit a little bit better into the... Um, I, that is, it kind of points towards Baron and Barahir's continued presence as well, right? Which which was nice, but... Um, yeah, the mixture of human and elf corpses uh, and everything. Anyway, I I I I I really like that. That you know, this actually ending with a person dying, not just looking at a bunch of corpses on the battle, not only looking at a bunch of corpses on the battlefield. Um, but uh, okay, awesome. Well, no wonder I liked Namo so much because it was my idea. So there we go. Like it's it's uh, uh, it's um, the tension but so uh vanwa that's deadway right yeah yes yes, yes. so okay. obviously we had to have deadway um yeah but i kind of resisted writing deadway into a script <laughs> that's the, totally fine <laughs> the, um, the idea though was if i had kept it as deadway no one would ever be tempted to say that character's name right so it would be fine like it would work as a joke name in the background right so no one actually ever says vanwa um right. because that's also not this guy's real name it just means right. lost so he's a lost soul right. so i named him right. lost soul <laughs> right right like a, a stage direction as we see in other places right but it's yeah 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 no that's cool that's cool um yeah so um the the way that the the way that the scene panned out um, that is, I say, I shouldn't say use terms like panned out is probably a bad metaphor to use in a situation like this, isn't it? Um, the way that the situation that the that the scene unfolds, right? Um, the exposition seems warranted by the fact that there are so many who are dead here, right? That is, you know, one question. If I sort of back up from it, right? One question is, um, like, you know, would you know, Mandos have to show up personally, right? Like every time an elf dies, right? But like, you know, and like, is this like, you know, do they have to go through this script all the time of like explaining, you know, okay, and now you have this choice and are you going to come or not? But you really probably should. And, uh, you know, but we're not going to compel you. Um, and you'd think like, um, if this were like part of Mandos's regular job description, he'd get awful sick of this job eventually, Right. But it seems totally warranted by the occasion, right? By the the sort of the grandeur of the situ- the battlefield situation, and surely this is the um, one of the things that it really kind of brings home, right? Is that this is um this is a significant moment in the history of elvish mortality. Have so many elves ever died at one time ever before? Like I don't think so, right? There have been elvish deaths. There have been other battles and things, and um, 
you know, we had a, a bunch of elves dying, you know, at the Dagor Aglareb, but nothing like this, right? You know, so just a, um, and, and it's, I thought, what I liked about that is it kind of contextualized the start of season six very clearly, not just in, like, now let's consider the, the like, political and sort of strategic uh, uh, aftermath of the Dagor Bragalach, right? But it really grounded the whole thing in this, this, the personal disaster. Like, let us reflect on how many people died, elves and men alike, how many people died. This is the greatest, uh, you know, mortality uh, in the history of Arda, basically. I mean, that's right. I think that's fair to say. Um, this is uh, the third major war involving elves and, or, you know, battle involving elves and men. Yeah. Yeah. Up until this point, I would say this is the highest amount of Four. incarnate casualties up until this point. The near ninth is yet to come. The near ninth is yet to come. Exactly. Right. So the near ninth is the fifth battle. Is the fifth. Uh, one. Which one but, am I missing? The um, Denethor. Oh, right. Of course. Yeah. The yeah. Green elves. Yeah. So there were a lot of casualties there as well. Yeah. yeah. But not, it was a smaller group. Right. But they were almost entirely wiped out. So that was a big deal. But yeah. Yep. Yep. No, that's true. That's true. Yeah. No, that was a while ago. I mean, that was like like 500 years ago. Yeah. It was season three. So it's been 500 years. Mendes only has to come over and do this every every so often. Exactly. Exactly. When it comes over on special occasions. Yeah. When there's a whole. And there's a whole group rate situation going on yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. You get, yeah. A, you get a special tour guide if you have a group <laughs> exactly. over, exactly. over, over yeah. 10,000. Yeah. So right? We've chartered a special bus for the occasion. So, yep. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep. Um, loved the cloaks, too, by the way. That was the other detail that I really liked, right? The Maiar of uh, of Namo all had cool cloaks. Am I, was, am I reading that right? Or is, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Which is supposed to evoke... The bat cloak of Thorin Glethel, right? So show that her cloak is a a corruption, uh, you know, sort of a twisting of their of their cloaks like that. Um, uh, Yeah. Yeah. So um, anyway, so I thought that was I thought that was really cool. Like the um, the distinction between um, human souls and the the elvish souls, right? Seeing the humans get drawn away inexorably. Right. And the um, whereas the elves just kind of watching them go and and when wondering right and then you know voluntarily making the choice i found the conversation between namo and vanwa really um it seemed to me to work uh it seemed to me very noldor right that they would distrust namo right namo's Namo's obviously got it out for them right i mean these guys are seeing him for the first time since <laughs> You know, he was proclaiming his curse, right? Um, and um, loved the um, loved the stuff about his mercy, right? Um, you know, and the mercy of Namo being bitter to receive. Uh, that that I thought was some really some really some really fun stuff there. Um, so so yeah. Uh, then Sauron and Thorin Gwethel coming in, right? Um, the Sauron's sort of manifestation as Thu, right? Uh, you know, S- Sauron going all like necromancer at the end. I thought was was really fun. Um, what um, one thing that was interesting 
it's like I, I was kind of left thinking about this. And I was like, well, I don't know what else one would do, like what else we could do in the scene. The one thing that kind of struck me in that is that when Thorin Gwethel and um, Sauron command the um, elvish spirits that remain, it seemed really easy for them to do, right? They would just like crook their fingers and they could immediately, and they were just, they were dragging, you know, dead way around, uh, you know, on a string, uh, after that. Um, and I was, I was like, okay, so on the one hand, like, I guess my, my question was something along the lines of is doing necromancy then as simple as just saying, Hey, you, over here, right? Um, but I didn't know what I wanted instead, right? When I was thinking about that, I'm like, well, what did I expect Sauron to do? Sauron um, and Thurmwethel should pull up in a white van with like, <laughs> and, and Thurmwethel should lean out the window with some lollipops, right? Or or like throw bags over their heads or something. No, yeah. but I, no, like I, it's like there was, I guess you were the wanting one- a cost. If necromancy is this evil magic, there should be a cost. A cost would be, certainly would be one, like, yes, that, that, but honestly, it was like, is there, like, would it even, will it be obvious that there's magic of any kind being done here? Um, And then the further question of, and are we going to make it clear that this is evil magic? And that, as you say, there's a cost to it, right? And that it would probably not be. Now, to some extent, Sauron's own transformation might hint at that, but it yeah. also kind of comes a, comes a, around almost as if it were a kind of um, disguise or like um, you know sort of spiritual cosplay that Sauron is doing there at the end, right? Like, and now I shall uh, I shall manifest myself in this way, which of course, like he could do, right? I mean, that's that's fine, but yeah, just kind of. I mean, it's clear the essential element. I thought was conveyed clearly like that. They have the power to um, enslave them. And the way in which this rendered so thoroughly and so immediately um, like moot and foolish, the choice of the Noldor, right? They're going to, they're going to stay. They're not going to, they're not going to like just give in to Namo. They're, they're going to go their own way. They're going to do their own thing. And then, then immediately they're just like rounded up like, um, you know, like puppies, uh, off the battlefield was fine. Like I, I, I like that element of it. Like the way in which what sounded from their, his conversation with, uh, with, um, with Mandos as if it were going to be this like noble rebellion, mm-hmm. right? Um, I just went all Captain Ahab at the end of Moby Dick really quickly, right? And and it turned it just so the um, the immediate payoff of like they made the wrong decision. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind I, I kind of like that element. So as far as they were concerned, I thought that that worked. Um, it certainly conveyed the essential thing, right? That now these lost souls who made a bad choice, A, they made a bad choice, and B, now they are enslaved, right? Now they are they are captive. Now they're being used um, and they're being dominated. Um, this, that came across, right? Even to the, I thought, very effective setting up of the, 
uh, you know, the very, very beginning of our um, uh, release from bondage theme, right, that we get in the very, very final scene with Sauron creating the pot of evil right at the very end. Um, So anyway, I thought that all of like that, it definitely like accomplished all the things that had to be accomplished right in that way. But the element that I was missing was necromancy. Um, again, necromancy has been done here, right? Um, and also, I guess, the, the the other reason that I think that this would... The other place where I think that this would help would be the ghost attack. Um, that... Like, why are they acting this way? Like, how have they been compelled to do this, right? Um, I felt like there was um, the, the the kind of the gap that I, as a, as a, as a reader or a viewer was asked to, to sort of cross in my suspension of disbelief, right. From, I saw these otherwise well-intentioned souls captured, right. Kidnapped or whatever, ghost napped at the beginning of, uh, of episode one. Um, but now by the end of the same episode, they appear to be fully complicit you know, attacking their compatriots and, um, uh, you know, leading to Sauron's, uh, and again, I, I, I could do it, right. I, I could do the, um, um, I could do the leap, but I felt like there was still, you know, a leap there to be made. Yeah. So of all the storylines in this episode, the one that is most, the viewer will surely figure this out is Sauron's storyline. And mm-hmm. part of it is to preserve the surprise of the attack on Minas Tirith. Right. So we can't have him come out flat out and say exactly what he's up to. Sure, sure. But I agree with you that if there's a little bit more about how necromancy works, then it'll be less of a leap to get from well-intentioned captive ghost to evil ghost. <laughs> <laughs> yes, evil, malicious, danger ghost. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Because like, why is this ghost dangerous? I don't get it. Yeah, I, I see where you're going with that. But if understanding what the compulsion accomplishes, yeah. So there, yes, there's a little bit of room here between when Theron Gwethel does it and when Sauron does it to have a little bit more exposition. Yes. Yeah. So we could we could have a philosophical conversation about necromancy between those two characters. At the they're, of the episode, they're comparing if that's notes. What you're needing. Yeah, if that's exactly. what you're needing. That can yeah, go in I, there, right, Nick? That would be totally fine. Yeah. Something like that. More exposition <laughs> is always better, I think. Nick. So that's that's one of Nick's rules, isn't it? One of Nick's rules. <laughs> so another thing to consider is is that a certain amount of the is magic stuff happening and is you know, like the the struggle involved right mm-hmm. the back and forth struggle involved could be communicated just through like a well executed special effects sequence you right. know so like our fabulous special effects team yeah. you know would come in and Top it would be uh yeah it would be uh like something on the order of the not exactly this, but the conflict between Sauron and Gandalf in the the third Hobbit, second Hobbit film, the one where with the with the with the glowy bubble and the black shadow trying to get into it and the, like ah uh, okay right yeah, yeah like yeah. not that effect obviously I've, it's I've, a different I've, effect I have you blocked, blocked them. off yes uh, yeah yes. Uh, a yeah. lot of the Hobbit films so, yeah. but yes yeah. I'm remembering that now um, yes. 
Yeah, so I guess what I... At, at its simplest level, what I want is to see... Because there are two things, ultimately, that Sauron needs to accomplish, right? Arguably three. One, merely to capture and bind the spirits, right? So I'm just going to uh, capture, to, to imprison you, right? That's, that's, step, that's step one. Um, and that I thought was clear. Like, that was the thing that was most clearly accomplished. The second step, though, is I'm going to compel you to do my will, right? So that you are now going to be an agent of, like, fear and evil, and you have no choice. I am enslaving you to my will. You are now an agent of my will, right? Which then would... I would be prepared. I don't need to know how his will is going to apply them, right? But if I know that his will is going to apply them... I mean, honestly, when... We got the two guards, and we got the first ghost sighting, right, um, at Tulsirian. I was not yet sure what we were seeing. Like, I wasn't sure what the, like, how much in their own, under their own control the ghosts were, right? Um, Anyway, so, compulsion, right? You are now my thrall, and you are performing my will. And then the possible third one is I am in some sense, like, feeding on your power and I am being strengthened by, you know, by my connection with you. Um, and that one can be vague and certainly could actually wait until post pot of evil, right? That could be one of the functions of the pot of evil uh, in a sense and wouldn't be necessary. Like if that never happened, if that was never conveyed, then I think that that would be, that would be fine. Um, but, um, but that second one seems to me a really important step to be made. So, it doesn't even have to be, and of course, obviously I was teasing Nick about the exposition, but it doesn't even have to be more exposition that we would need, just that one extra step, right? Yeah. Um, like to, 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 um, uh, to characterize it in like a really, uh, 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 you know, uh, deliberately trivialized way. If Thorin Gwethel first does the ensnaring, right? And it's like, look, you can capture them like this. And then Sauron is like, oh, yeah, hey, what if you do this too? Whammo. And then he whammies it, right? Yeah. Uh, even something kind of parallel to yeah. the, 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 the bottomless dread, the spell mm-hmm. of bottomless dread, right? You know, because he, 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 he was watching that and taking notes, right? Um, so what if he does a bottomless dread-esque thing, right, um, to the, so that we see on screen Vonway has been dominated, right? Mm. And we could see the difference between Vonway being dragged along, possibly like, you know, ephemerally kicking and screaming, right, behind Thurin Gwethel. So if Thurin Gwethel is able to, to, to basically do the spiritual equivalent of putting like a chain around, you know, his neck and dragging him along, right? But then Sauron lays the whammy on him, and now he's docilely mm. following along behind Sauron. And we yeah. could even have like, I don't know, all you'd need was just for him to like send them off to do something and have them go, like just demonstrate that they are now extensions of his will and, and they're doing whatever he wants them to do. Then I would be completely ready for when we see the ghost, I would know. You could even do, Nick, thinking of special effects and this is I know like this would be like a very 1980s level special effect but um, but again it could be really as simple as like changing the color and appearance of the spirit right like once it gets mm. that it just, it just doesn't look it's, the same it's right? like in Tron you know it turn, once it's under the under the control of the master control program it turns red yeah that that that, that 
a cue like that so that then when red spirits show up right at uh at at Tulsirian, i know what i'm dealing with right okay yeah. this is one that's been um because again you know when our eyes have been opened in episode the beginning of episode one to the fact that like in an otherwise apparently deserted by living creatures battlefield there are spirits floating around when we see spirits floating around the battlements it's like okay, okay wait can all elves see that? Like, is this normal? Is this like somebody coming to say goodbye or what's going on here? Like yeah. that, you know, we've been introduced to that. But again, if we know from the beginning, malicious spirit dominated by Sauron has just come on stage, then I, I think we're, we're a little bit more prepared. If the process um, of the, the not quite bottomless dread now with necromancy, um, if that process causes them to physically change like that like they're more haggard like there's a whole you know there's a whole transformation that takes place within yes. the ghosts themselves and yes. then the ghosts that we see at Minas Tirith that later have very clearly gone through that yeah that transformation Actually, that's worth thinking about a little bit what would a post dominate like what would a spirit which has been sort of shaped by Sauron's malice look like? What would he go for? Um, and nothing to obviously ring Wraithy, clearly, uh, right? Um, because that's, of course, a completely different situation anyway. Wow, I say completely different. Significantly different situation. Um, but... Um, uh, He's draining yeah. their energy from them. Right. Mm -hmm. So something that makes him look a little bit shrunken would probably be good. Yes. Yes. I mean, they're already dead, so you can't look sickly when you're like <laughs> right. walking around right. with mortal wounds on your body. Anyway. I love that, by the way. I love the wounds. That was one of my favorite things like that as, as a really cool nonverbal way to signal the link between Fear and Roa, uh in the Fear and Roar of the of the of the Alapo is really cool. Um but um uh yeah hang on hang a second actually in order to answer this question I think we need to go back to the other question which is the cost to Sauron, right? Um because we're talking about him feeding his own power through this, but as we know there's a cost to him, just as the ring of power. This is the this is the predecessor, right? This is uh, uh, this is the the like alpha edition of the ring of power, essentially. Um, what he's going to be doing, what he's doing here. Um, so he's able to dominate them. He has to put forth some of his own spirit in order to do so, right? Mm -hmm. But he gets something back in exchange. Right, he gets something back in exchange, which is he gets power from the like with the ring of power. Right, right. He pours a lot of himself into the ring of power, and as a result, he his power is indeed increased under certain circumstances and in a way. Right, um, but he is more powerful with the ring than without the ring. Um, you know, he 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 does in fact manage to he gets something out of the making the ring of power. Right, or he would never have done it in the first place. Right. Um, so to here, he gets something from them, but he's doing something to himself as well. Um, and, but what's it going to be? It's not the same thing as with the Ring of Power, right? The Ring of Power, 
like this whole I'm going to take and distill a large portion of my essence and put it into this physical object, that's like a bridge way further than what he's doing here, right? This needs to be a very, very preliminary uh, kind of uh, kind of thing. Um, so, so how does it work? If he puts forth a little bit of his power, does he have to put forth some of his power into them? And that enables him to kind of feed on them? It certainly would enable him to use them, to dominate them and to use them, right? Um, I think that the ability to feed off of them comes later, right? When the, um, with the, the, with the, the trouble of evil. evil. Yeah. 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 Um, that his power is going right. into Tub the containment. Funny, yeah. 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 Yes. Right. His power is going into the containment at that point. Yes. Right. Yes. And so, you know, he makes his warp core in the basement, right? And he's able to draw from that, essentially. One tub to enslave them all. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 That's One definitely what the runes say on the yeah, metal. absolutely the metal is what the runes say. Ring yeah. around yeah. the, uh, yes. around the space. Yes. Yep. Yep. Um, yep, yep. No, that's, that's, that's absolutely a done deal. Um, uh, what if he drains the light from their eyes? Evan says, well, that would work because these are all Noldor. Right. 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 Um, yeah, I, I, I would say, um, that actually seems to me almost the minimum of what should happen. Right. In as well, much he as... also says ghost attacking Tulsirian with empty eye sockets would make that way creepier. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, I would. I would say we start with that. Actually, I mean, I love that. Um, the yeah. fact that they they had the light. The, you know, the light of their eyes. You know, because these are the spirits of of the Calaquendi, right? Um, but not only is the light of their eyes drained, but they're. You know, yes, they're like eye sockets are completely empty is a really good non a really good visual way to say this person is not driving the bus anymore. Right. Right. Yeah. But not not physically empty, but like void, like a black Com- hole is in there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it would be um, I mean, even to have I don't mean empty in the sense of like skull, you know, right. empty skull holes. Right. But like. um completely black um you know like no iris no sclera just like empty blackness you We're know have to get them the, some yeah. uh some uh, some contacts painted yeah, right. with that that ultra black paint <laughs> demons well, I, on supernatural <laughs> i was assuming that uh i was assuming that these guys were going to be all cgi anyway so uh, yeah, yeah. it would be it should be easy enough i would think but anyway yeah okay so we we but we kind of start with that, right? That's the signal that their own life and will is no longer uh, driving them, right? Yes. Um, how would we, what would we want to do to signal? I, I would think that the power expelled by Sauron would, um, the power expelled by Sauron would be visible in like linking them to him, right? We could, he could like, not 
physically. But I mean, he could like suck out their eyeballs. Like that would be a way to to show him sort of feeding on their power, right? If the light of their eyes, uh, like if he draws the light of their eyes into himself, right? Um, What's the rating of this show again? <laughs> Not like with a straw or something. Right? It doesn't have to be graphic. I'm just saying. Well, you could see the light come from their eyes like two orbs that come together into one, and then he grabs it physically in right. his hand, and then the or just camera cuts back it to in. them. Right, and then yeah. the camera I mean, cuts back to them, and their eyes are and now their eyes void. are empty. Yeah, exactly. No, that's exactly the kind. Of, that, but but we would have to show something going from him to them. Also, yeah. right, have to show a way in which he's exerted himself in order to, um, uh, in order to uh, enable this, right? In order to enslave them in the first place, right? Um, it's Thorin Gwethel who shows here's how you, because that was her job, right? She's like rounding up, rounding up uh, 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 souls, like that's what, that's what that was her day job, right? Back in. The- back in the day right um so that's where she and she's and we already see her maliciously twisting that right she was not in fact you know she wasn't supposed to be throwing a net around them or you know a manacle or something like that spiritually speaking which is what she's doing right um so her step there seems to me a very logical step to show her showing and considering the background that we've given her and everything um as former spirit of 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 namo which by the way that is so good. Like, I just, sorry, I'm loving our, the background we've given to Thorin Gwethel all over again. So good. But anyway, um, even the way in which the whole, like, vampire, you know, vampire thing as, like, vampire as, like, twisted Maiar of death, like, so good. Like, oh my goodness. It's just, it's just so good. But anyway, okay, okay. Um, so, Sauron's innovation then is beyond containment, right? Beyond capture uh, to this domination. Um, I don't know that we need to, when I said we need to show something coming out from him, I don't know that we need to like visually like show something actually emerging from him. Like we don't have to be quite so literal about that as far as he's concerned. But what we do want to show, Marie, as you said, is the cost, Right. Especially since we need to show this cost coming due when the tower collapses and the spirits are all released. And he has to be we have to prepare now for how we are going to show him being visually like visibly weakened and damaged when the um, when the 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 tub is opened. Um, uh, yeah. 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 Um, I'm not sure how to represent that <laughs> with Sauron. Except, well, first of all, before we think about how to represent it, what what is it? Like, what is the consequence to him? He's he's weakened. It's going to take him some time. Um, uh, it's going to take him some time to recover himself. Not quite post Numenor recovery time, or even post uh, uh, having the ring cut from my hand by Isildur recovery time. It's not going to be anything like that because he's not done anything like the Ring of Power yet. But um, but what is going to be the cost to him? It needn't be very great, let me emphasize also. I think that what we need to show, what we would want to show in this long 
game that we're playing with our secret protagonist, <laughs> Sauron, right? Our secret main character, uh, Sauron, through the entirety of film film. This is the very first step on the that nihilistic road, right? He's We've seen him make several, you know, many steps towards evil and stuff, but one of the things that we've shown is this tension between him and Morgoth, where Morgoth is willing just to wreck stuff, and he's still trying to build, right? He's still trying to, to make things rather than just destroy things. Um, that's been one of the tensions between Sauron and Morgoth through the first five seasons. This, it seems to me, would be the first moment where he, like, sets his first foot on the path that Morgoth is already treading, right? Of destroying himself in the interest of destroying everything else, right? Um, I mean, ultimately, that's where Morgoth gets, right? Into this completely, practically, this, like, self-destructive, nihilistic uh, place where he is destroying himself in order to destroy the world. So Sauron is going to be in the middle of a battle, battle uh, fight uh, when the tower falls and the tub of evil is destroyed. Um, but it's possible that we could show him being impervious to attacks prior to the destruction. So he's using his borrowed power to protect himself. But yeah. then once the tub is opened up and the souls escape all of his wounds hit him at once type ooh, of thing ooh, ooh. yeah yeah okay okay so yes yeah 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 yeah. that's a great idea because of course i'm thinking now of like some of the nature of middle earth stuff right um and in particular i'm thinking about tolkien's writings about how they get more tied to uh, their raw to their physical form right over time right that could be a way that we could manifest it Right, that he's he's going to get to the po- the point where somebody can stand on his neck and cut his finger off. Right, um, that would presumably not be possible right now. He's not sufficiently tied. There's nothing yet really tying him to the physical, binding him to the physical world. To he can he can make, take any physical form he wants at any at any point. Right, um, he's not bound to the physical world. His binding to the physical world is one of the things that's going to change. Right. Um, progressively over time. So that would be a really interesting way to show this and to show him being vulnerable. I don't know about his wounds kind of all coming home, but he could get wounded after that. Right. Yeah. I mean, like he's because um, he would not. He, how, how would he be vulnerable to attack? He's not even a physical being. Right. Um, I mean, if you were manifesting your physical body by an act of will and you're in a physical combat with somebody, presumably well, you could manage that fairly cleverly, right? Yeah, but he's not in physical combat. He's in song combat no. with Luthien. Yeah. So I don't know what song combat does to you. I... <laughs> right. But all that we would need to do is show some kind of physical thing not affecting him, right? Like we just need to see like one physical thing pass through him, whatever it is, right? Um, under any circumstance, just to show that he's he's just... He's Im- impervious to any kind of physical attack, right? He's not even really, truly physically there. But then when the tub breaks, he... Um, I, it, it could even be something as simple as, um, like, rubble from the explosion hits him. And to his surprise, like, knocks him over. You know, he's, he's, he, he can't, you know, 
like phase out of that or whatever. Um, but um, but yeah, you know, I, I think that would be interesting. I, I mean, it would be interesting to see if we could pull that off. But I think that that that's, that seems to me a really promising direction for this because again, we can't. As always with Sauron, we have to be super gradual, right? We can't push him too far over the edge too soon. Um, it's still way early in Sauron, Sauron's career arc, right? Uh, so, um, but yeah, yeah, the 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 notion that this is going to tie him, um, tie him more to the physical world that he's never been before, um, that I really like. Okay, cool. So maybe we can do that, and then. Thinking about how that gets manifested. Um, yeah, I don't know. All we would need to show is something to suggest that the process, that is the process of enslaving the, you know, explaining, enslaving Vanway, um, like hurts. Like it, it just, again, I think. Visually, we could rep- non-verbally, we could show that right. Sauron lays the whammy on them, and it's like clearly painful to him, right? But then he inhales the. I kind of like inhaling, right? Uh, he, you know, he inhales the light from their eyes, and is stronger than he was, right? Better and stronger than he was, right? Like the the kind of uh, subtitle, right, of that thing would be, it was worth it. Right. That's a that's a good exchange. Um, Yeah, that hurt a little bit. Uh, That's doing something unpleasant and unnatural to me. But net gain, net gain. Right. Net gain. So I'm cool with that. And then he's going to the final step. Right. Of actually making the tub of evil and doing his, um, uh, you know, putting the fire letters around the edge of the, tu- the, the edge of the tub is, uh, to then like the, sort of the next stage of the same kind of process. Right. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Odalana Sauron binds himself in order to be able to bind others. Yeah. That's exactly, that's exactly kind of how that bargain works really. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, cool, cool. All right. All right, I like that. I like that. I think this would this will help a lot then. Um, if we've got these eyeless um, elf spirits attacking later on, I would have had fewer questions about that. Um, it also answers the question that um, Philip was asking before about elves not really being bothered by spirits of the dead, at least based on Legolas. There are two things that I'd say about that, Philip. Thing number one, spirits of men, right? Um, uh, That doesn't necessarily tell you how they would react to unquiet and rebellious spirits of elves, necessarily, Um, which might creep them out in some other kinds of profound ways, right? Um, But then the other thing, Philip, is that, again, if, if these are not just you know, uh, spirits wandering about, but, um, uh, clearly damaged and horrible, um, you know, horribly tortured. There's something very wrong there. Right. Um, that I think would also help to explain it. So, okay, cool. Awesome. Um, well, we'll come back and we'll talk more about the ghost fight when we get to the ghost fight sequence, but 
Uh, but that was good. That was my only real sort of question or issue in that opening sequence. So Sauron the Necromancer. All right, so we talked about some of this uh, already. Thoringwethel is showing how to ensnare them, right? Right, yes. Um, the Sauron and Gothmog quarrel was kind of genius, actually. I really liked the Sauron Gothmog quarrel. Um, what I loved about it was the reminder, which it is so easy to forget, of how vulnerable the orcs are to sunlight. Like, that is a factor that is, is easy to forget. Like, when reading the Silmarillion, easy to forget how much the orcs dislike the sunlight. Um, and the fact that that's still kind of a big deal. That it would... I mean, I found myself saying, when I got to that scene, I found myself saying, I, I'm realizing I had never really thought about what a significant logistical issue this would be for Morgoth and his armies to deal with this whole... Yeah, I mean, you don't want... A, you know, as, as, as you were suggesting in the script, you don't want to go on campaign in the middle of the summer, which is, of course, exactly when you do want to go on campaign normally, right, in a normal human war, right? Um, but, uh, but uh, you know, when the, when the nights are really short, right, uh, and uh, Sauron's barbs about that were really... Uh, I, I, I really quite enjoyed. Um... But yeah, I thought that, that was really interesting. Um, Sauron's cracks about Gothmog burrowing his way all the way to uh, um, uh, to, to Doriath, I thought was fun. Yeah, because well, there's Gothmog has trolls in his army, right? So they don't just dislike the sunlight. Yeah, with trolls, it's a separate issue. Yeah. Yeah. So I was I was trying to figure out how you deal with that. So of course, underground construction <laughs> seemed the logical next right. step. Right. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I really, uh, I, re- I really like that. Though I, I did think it would. Be, I don't think you used the word burrow, but I think that would be even funnier in Sauron's taunt to Gothmog if he accuses him of, bur- of planning to burrow his way all the way. Uh, the characterization of Gothmog as some kind of mole or something like that, uh, you know, would be, you know, Gothmog. Yeah, would be really funny. Um, but anyway, yeah, I, I, so I, I really, I, I really like that. The confrontation between Sauron and Gothmog at Tall Syrian was was really fun. I didn't sort of see that coming. I didn't, I, you know, I, I, I could tell that Sauron was kind of racing against him. Um, that he was going to beat him so narrowly um, was not something I was expecting, but the confrontation between Sauron and Gothmog, I really, I, I really liked that. Um, uh, I thought that was, I, th- I thought, I thought that worked really well. Did you notice that we managed to get the line winged, winged speed in there? I did love the winged speed. Yes, yes. And the fact that the winged speed is turned into a like sardonic slap by Sauron yes. was was really yes. uh was really awesome. That was really funny. Um um part of the reason we needed that scene is because the attack on Tolsirian is not from Sauron's perspective. Right. And yet it was part of his storyline. So to finish up his storyline, we, we needed him to have someone to talk to who wasn't an elf. <laughs> right, right. So. Yeah, no, right, exactly. Uh, he certainly needed an interlocutor. But also, it, I thought that it um, it really helps to characterize, it helps to set up the rule that Sauron is going to institute at Tol Syrian. Right. Um, he is not just going to obviously we, we know and it's suitably emphasized the military strategic significance of Tolsirian. 
right? Um, several people talk about that, and that's a big deal, right? Um, but of course, what Sauron is going to do in Tall and Gaurahoth is not just make it into a military base from which he's going to, you know, send raids out into the countryside, right? Um, there's more to it. Than, it's going to be not only more, but also different from that, right? Um, this is not just part of a military campaign. Something, it, it just prepares us for a quite different flavor for what is to come, which seems to me very appropriate, very, very mm. right uh, to what Sauron is going to do. And I, I, I really, I really like that. Um, uh, and also, of course, it provided a great way to introduce the concept of Sauron being assigned Dorthonian as well, right? Mm. Um, uh, there would have, it would have been, we would have just had to have Morgoth, you know, coming out of nowhere to, um, you know, kind of give that essentially. Yeah. Um, but so anyway, I, I was, that was, uh, that was also one effect of the Gothmog Sauron conversation is that like, like meanwhile, you know, Meryl and Gilgalad and everybody are like literally like paddling away in boats, like while yes. Sauron and Gothmog are talking to each other, right? So, yeah. in the end, it kind of makes the capture of Tolsirian. There's a real undercutting, in a sense, I think, which but I, but I think not an inappropriate one, right? Um, undercutting of the entire elf uh, like defense situation, right? Um, as I said. I, in one way of understanding, of trying to guess what this season is going to be about from the first season, from the first episode, it would be the attempt to recover the strategic situation and reassert that, you know, somehow just try to try to recover from the Dago Bragalock, basically. Um, but everybody emphasizes how important Tulsirian is, right? Tulsirian is not only lost, it's like lost twice. <laughs> right? like, would they have been able to beat off Gothmog uh, and his army? Probably not, right? Three Balrogs probably would have taken Tulsirian, I'm thinking, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, the fact that as the elves are escaping, both of the two invading armies, I mean, it's, it almost like doubles, it shows you how doomed Tulsirian was, and really calls into question, at the very end of the episode, calls into question what seemed to have been building all through the episode, right? That the, you know, the important thing is, you know, we're going to be reestablishing the elf's position. And the most important element of that is whatever we do. Step one is holding on to Tolsirian, right? Mm -hmm. And then we find not only that they failed to do that, but that there was never a prayer of them doing that, right? The only question was which of the bad guys was going to seize it first, right? That's in fact, the only drama as far as Tolsirian is concerned in this episode, which leaves us, I think very interestingly and appropriately at the end of the episode saying, well, then what is going to happen this season, right? What hope is there if the only one thing that they said they had to do is already failed at the end of episode one, right? And that I think is, is, as I say, I think it's an appropriate setup for there's an alternative version, right? There is going to be a strike back at... Uh, at Morgoth in this season, but it's not going to look anything like anybody thinks it's going to look. Um, so that failure seemed to me appropriate, um, I thought, in that sense. Um, yeah. Oh, and I agree with Evan uh, that um, Sauron not even explaining, right? Um, he doesn't even do the villain thing, 
right? Like reveal his whole plot, uh, like brag. Even after the fact, it would have been safe, right? He could totally have like bragged uh, on how clever he was and everything, but he doesn't. You know, he just is standing there like, yeah, took the tower like it ain't no thing, right? Uh, no trolls, no, you know, siege equipment needed, whatever. Um, uh, there's that sense, uh, Evan, almost as if he's making it look like he took the tower completely by himself, right? I just basically walked in here, took control of the joint, right? What were you wasting time for, you know, uh, trolls and siege equipment? How quaint, right? Um, I, I agree. I just, I, I thought that was, um, um, I loved how high Sauron's stock is at the end of episode one. Like, he is looking really good at the end of episode one. And I think that's a mm. really, really great effect. So, yeah. Yeah, big fan. Big fan. Um, yeah, other other thoughts on the, the Sauron plot? Before we move on to a different element? We're going to get to meet our hero? Uh, maybe we will get to meet our hero. Sort of. Or at least we'll get to meet the people in whose plot our hero is a yes. minor character. Yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. So we get uh so Barry here. Um Oh Barry here. I was talking about Luthien and Thingle. Oh no, not that one. I'm just yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's that's more accurate season wide in this episode. It's it's definitely more uh we definitely get more Baron, so yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so <clears throat> yeah. Oh, here's no go, go, go ahead, Marie. Sorry, I was going to say that I believe it was Evan who pointed out that, that we have three main characters this season: Baron, Luthien, and Death. So we 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 introduce Death real strong at the beginning right. of the episode. Oh yeah, the other two oh, yeah. are more subtle. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. No one is going to uh, be under any false pretenses that Death is strongly involved uh, uh, is a central character here. Okay, so with Barahir's band, the um, the thing that you had them get up to was the rescuing of thralls, right? We wanted to see them in action, doing something to be a thorn in the side of the uh, bad guys and rescuing thralls, certainly. Um, the thing that I thought was most effective about that is it absolutely clarified, uh, like easily clarified or answered the question, why are they staying again? Like, what's the, um, especially, and it's interesting because, like, you guys all also went out of your way, in a sense, to make the question more difficult, right? By, as I said, like, raising the, like, you made their leaving to go to Brethel seemed not only a really desirable thing for them to do, but a very logical thing for them to do. Right. Um, in a sense, it's not only self-sacrifice for them to stay away. Right. And to stay in Dorthonian. But it's even like they're sacrificing um, like the, the people in Brethel will also suffer from them not yeah. going there as well. Right. So um, so on the one hand, by really um, emphasizing that link, which I and I felt in a really, really appropriate way. In a sense, you raised the stakes on the question of, so wait, wait, why are we staying in Tarthonian again? <laughs> Leaving seems actually like kind of a good idea. Why, why are we not doing that? Um, and as I remember we discussed before, the mere 
this is our land and we're not going to, we're going to, you know, fight until we die here did not seem like enough to sort of mm. justify it necessarily. Um, especially since in our uh, story, they're newcomers to this land functionally, yeah. right? So this is not even like the land that our fathers have like bled and died for and generations of, no, like some of them still remember arriving. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's like within this generation that they've been living there. So, um, uh, so yeah, yeah. That, but anyway, like there are still people, um, who are being, um, you know, they're still living humans yeah. who are, uh, you know, who are enslaved, um, by the orcs in Dorthonian is a great and obvious reason for them to stay. But their numbers are dwindling is another yes. point that, uh, we wanted to, to draw out that they, Barry Hughes band is reaching the point of diminishing returns. Yes. for their mission and in fact this is quite possibly the largest group of humans they're ever going to get out again no matter how long they stay here and they know it right they suspect it at the very least right yeah um yes that uh, i mean the conversation they have at the end is fairly com- like the reasons to leave seem fairly compelling Right. um and i actually kind of liked the fact that Barry here's decision to stay didn't feel obvious, right? Like, Barahir's decision to stay at the end felt very second-guessable, essentially, right? Um, though I loved Gorlim's nonverbal contribution to that discussion, <laughs> right? Uh, Gorlim clearly not ready to, you know, of all of them, the least ready to leave, right? Um, uh, and I, I did like that a lot. Um, but... Um, and of course, I, clearly, the way in which the rescuing of the thralls sets up Gorlim's desperate hope, right, to uh, find Ilanel. That 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 seemed like a really logical setup too. Um, but anyway, so that was um, that was good. So wait, so tell me about the dog. This is this is this is important, right? Right. So the last time I wrote a dog into a script. It was observed that the dog was present at the beginning and not at the end, and people were concerned. This was Holith's dog, right? Correct. There yeah. was, however, like a 12-year gap between those two scenes. So, like, right. what do you think happened to the dog? And and also nobody noticed that her grandmother also mysteriously disappeared. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, Very typical. Concerned about the dog, but not the grandma. Yeah. Right. right. So knowing that, I was like, <laughs> okay, if I'm going to put a dog in this script... I better assure everyone up front that we have planned out where this dog is going and that this dog story is you catastrophic. Okay. So that's all I need to tell you right now. It will come back to this dog later. I think uh, episode three will be the time to find out what we're doing with find the dog. Out, find out about the dog. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But I, I also I just have wanted... further plans from the, for this dog beyond episode three, but we'll, we do, we'll get there. we do, which yeah. is why I'm like, it'll, it'll gradually unfold, but Very I wanted good. to assure everyone up front that if your question is, wait a minute, what happens to this dog? I can assure you right now, the dog lives. There's right. There's, there's, yes, that's good. That's good. Yeah. You guys are like, um, uh, responding like Tolkien did 
to, you know, first he kills off so many ponies in The Hobbit, and then he takes super special care of all the ponies in, in The Lord of the Rings, right? Like, no no ponies are harmed in the making of this story, right? Uh, after the after the, 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 the hideous uh, losses uh, and, you know, pony after pony being eaten by bad guys in The Hobbit. Um, yes, yes. And, and yet, uh, and yet, Baylorn still trusts him. Them I know. With it his- was ponies yeah. like why on earth but that's why he was so careful that's why he went and personally supervised them right because mm. you can't obviously you can't let ponies out of your sight in the hobbit but uh, anyway so yeah so it's parallel right we got the you know you guys uh like tolkien i, I mean i joke that you know tolkien it's you know some like pony activists uh, who possibly lived in his house got to uh got to tolkien you know between the two books and um you know so, so yeah clearly uh, l- lessons have been learned. Um, but, um, okay, cool. So, The Dog. I'm looking forward to the continuing adventures of The Dog, which, by the way, I mean, can I just say the obvious thing? I really love the Huan anticipation here. Like, th- that there should be a dog who has, like, uh, plays an interesting role. I-, I like that. You know, just to to kind of plant the, uh, s- you know, the seeds for the dog hero who is to come. Seems to work for me. Um, tell me what you guys are thinking. Why does Barahir make the decision that he makes at the end? Why? Ex- what exactly activates Barahir to? I mean, is it just there might? St- I mean, is he in? Is he in a kind of denial about? I mean, it just not wanting to give up. Is it uh, like how? How would you characterize his? attitude my impression is that he doesn't know what evidence would have to be present to decide okay the mission is done okay so it's an open-ended mission right. and once they abandon it anyone who is still in Dorthonian has been doomed to like a horrible fate yeah right so he's reluctant to say okay we're done let's go home prematurely right Especially but, when it's pretty clear that Gorlin would probably try to stay behind all of this lonesome. Right. Baron is super anti leaving. Um, I don't remember how anti it, it, he is at this point in in the revisions, but um, he suggests that if other people want to go, he'll stay. Right. right. So basically, yeah, Gorlin and Baron are like, we'll stick it out till the end. Right. And Barrier's like, okay, we're, we're all still in this yes. together. Let's yeah. keep doing this. But he doesn't feel as fully committed as those other two voices because right. he has doubts that this is still wise. Like, it's been great this far, mm-hmm. but at what point is this a right. bad idea? And he's starting to think about that. Right. Yeah. Right. So he is the one who is most focused on the diminishing returns. Right. Yes. He's thinking about the big picture more than yeah. the rest of them are. Yeah. Yeah. Like Belligan. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, they're kind of thinking, yeah, it might be time, but they're not necessarily as, as thinking about, well, the mission's kind of over. You know, like they're thinking, gee, I'd really like to see my exactly. wife and little girl again, you know? Yes. And, um, 
I mean, I liked that in the sense that on the one hand, like they voiced that, right? That's, you know, that got explicitly put out on the table. But it's also clear that, you know, who's going to be the jerk who says, I'd really rather just like, I know there might be some people left in slavery to set free, but like, you know, actually, I think I'm just going to go hang out with my family instead, right? I mean, that's, you know... Yeah, so it's 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 clearly a difficult situation, but at the same time, that you know that desire to go to Bethel is real, and even the benefits of going to Bethel are real. Um, uh, in trying to build not only like the kind of future that Barihir wanted Baron to have, as he talks to him about, but even by extension, the sort of the future that their people could have, right? Um, if they were to return and. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, one question, one way to articulate what I'm talking about is like, what exactly is the responsibility, the primary responsibility of the leader of their their people, right? Um, because the argument can be made that, okay, yes, I, I understand that you're doing some good works here, right? But one could also say your place is with your people, like they mm. need you and your leadership, Right. Yeah. Um, and so merely staying until you're all killed is not necessarily right. doing your and duty. That's the worst part is that there is no succeeding for this mission. Right. Right. You, yeah. You come, you come, you either go home with the knowledge that you may have left some people behind or you die with the knowledge that there may still be some people stuck there. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's no, there, there really isn't any good, uh, any good outcome. Um, and the sort of resignation to kind of make the best of that situation, you know, and move forward. Anyway. Yeah. yeah so I, I'm just was kind of, that was the one thing. And it wasn't a question in the sense that I was wanting to challenge it, but just one of the things that I was kind of thinking through um, mm. and wondering a little bit more about what was in Barahir's head there. Um, but, um, but anyway, the, the characterization of the mission in that way as really just being explicitly a rescuing people mission, not just a let's stir up some trouble for the bad guys, right? Mm. Um, I liked that. I mean, that that's that's a mission that people can get behind, right? That's something that really is compelling rather than just, because if we were to go that other way, right? If it were just like the enemy is in our lands and we're not going to let them have it their own way, no matter what, right? If that's the only thing, um, then it clearly does seem to be a dereliction of duty. No, you should, it would be much better for you to return to your people and lead them uh, into whatever comes next for your people than to, um, uh, than to stay and do that. But, okay. All right. Um, I like that. Let's see. Of the things we got from Baron specifically, um, we got his interest in staying in Dorthonian, right? So we had his his kind of dedication to the cause. We saw that. Uh, what else did we see? I'm trying to remember anything else that I was supposed to, like, my takeaways from Baron. Um, we established that he's not married. <laughs> we established that he's not married, right? And has no clear future. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's right. That's right. He's uh, he's still an available bachelor uh, there uh, in Dorthonian. One um, thing that I, I really like is there's kind of like a, just an edge of bloodthirstiness to him. 
Yeah, um, there's the scene where they they're bringing the the people out of the barn, right? And the the old guy from the village, he's he says, uh, and the orcs are they? And he's like, nope, they're all dead, all of them. We got them. It's fine. Right. All right. of them are dead. Like he's he's like he's very very clear. Like, nope, right. we got them. They're all dead. Yep, that's what yeah. we did. That's what we I do knew. around here. I made a special point of killing them all <laughs> every <laughs> last one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. I, I, yeah. So again, we got very little, uh, really of Baron's character. Um, mm. not positively, but negatively got, so he's already a vegetarian. Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, we'll deal with that in episode two. I merely put the note in there so that if someone was trying to picture like the right. scene of them sitting around eating, like, Baron should not have a bowl of stew that has chunks of meat in it. <laughs> right. No, I was but thinking I, about we, that. But it's but... not in the script at this right. point. Yeah. I was, I was, that was one of the things that I almost forgot that I was uncertain about though. Um, his, why is he a vegetarian now? Because well, he already likes animals. Yeah. Well, sure. Basically... Lots of people like animals, but um, I mean, like presumably like elves who are not vegetarians also like animals. Right. Um, I thought his vegetarianism was a later onset condition. It is in the sense that it's during that four years when he's by himself and he that we're not doing. Right. Yes. So since we're not doing that, we don't have time for his vegetarianism later on. We so we're establishing his vegetarianism and which means we're establishing his friendship with animals Mm -hmm. as a preexisting condition of, of, of Baron here. Okay. Um, Now it can still have developed from the same sort of thing. Sure. Um, Just that happened during the time in between the end of episode 13 of last season. Right. And when we see him here. Right. Um, And so, and we will bring it up in episode two, so it can be established what his thoughts are there. Okay. Okay. So are we going to get references then to uh, his, because I have to admit the one thing with the one challenge or difficulty that I was anticipating from our, it seems to me, inescapable cutting of the four years um, is establishing his friendship with animals. Right. We're going to get that in episode two. Is that is, is that an episode two thing? Well, there's a reason there's a dog there. <laughs> there's a reason there's a dog. OK, I thought yeah. the dog might possibly be involved Ep- in this. Episode three is where that really comes out uh, okay. and then we went out of our way to get a scene in in episode four to to yeah. show it so okay yeah 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 because we're we are going to need to i mean especially since this is not just a character color kind of deal right i mean there's this is this is a plot point um this is going to be relevant for for huan right and huan's uh um huan's being talked around into this whole situation, right? Um, so we have to be able to be ready to believe it when Luthien starts talking about that. Um, goodness, we have to give Luthien the opportunity even to observe it. Like, how would she even yes. know? Indeed, indeed, episode four okay. needs to include that scene. Yeah, it really does. It really does. Um, but um, I mean, I know in the text they have some time. You know they're yeah. they hang out for a while, so yeah. she has plenty of opportunity to you know learn some of these things about so, him. So this yeah. is all I'm going to say about this: Luthien, okay. the anthropologist. 
Okay. All right. Okay. That's, that's not a phrase I was expecting, but I'm all right with that. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Um, Okay, cool. Excellent. Well, I figured, I mean, I knew you guys would have thought about this, but that was, that was one of the things, um, it's one of the things that I was sort of looking for, like wondering if we were going to get, and when we got introduced to Baron, were we going to get any hints, um, direct or indirect about his animal friendship thing, but it's fine. Um, okay, cool. Finrod, this, I loved this. This was really, this was, this was, this worked really, really well. Um, turning, like actually including the commissioning of the Nauglamir, um into what the C plot, I guess, of this episode. I thought that was really, I thought that was very, very well done. Um, you know, my favorite thing about it, my favorite thing about it is what you guys did for Finrod's character. Um, in doing that, right? Um, it would be easy to make Finrod look like a fop, right? Mr. I brought more jewels than anybody else and like, oh, could you please make me the greatest bling that anybody has like on this? Like, there's lots of lots of ways in which that could make Finrod look not great. And very few in which he comes out looking well. As a result, right? I mean, like, honestly, I don't think that anybody, no matter how much people are willing to invest in, like, Noldor and their bling are, it's just like, it's a Noldor thing, right? You just have to understand that it means something different to them than it means to us. There might be some people who would be willing to kind of go there, but still, it's not a good look. It's not, especially now, right? The Dagor Blot... Bragg has just happened. My two brothers have just died. I'm going to celebrate by having a really nice necklace made, right? Like, it's weird. Like, that would be weird at best, right? But I loved it. I loved it. I loved the way that it came across, not as, you know, like, this is clearly not, it was like the last thing on his mind, right? Um, the way that he comes up with this, um, you know, sort of provoked by circumstances, but he's, you know, showing his, not only his courtesy to the dwarves, but his, um, uh, his how far out of his way he's willing to go in order to make them comfortable and to maintain the alliance and make sure there's no, and and the dwarves are clearly being I really liked how um, the dwarves were being difficult without being absolute jerks right it was clear that like dealing with the dwarves was really challenging and Finrod was doing the best he could um again they weren't they didn't come Zirak didn't come across as horrible right it wasn't that he was uh, he was a terrible person and was being a jerk to Finrod but again like it's also clear that making them happy was not easy uh and i i liked i, I thought that that line was really well um uh was 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 well trodden um yeah the easy thing to do there would have been it, look do, do you guys want to come in or not like right exactly exactly um you know i'm trying to like can't you see what i'm trying to <laughs> trying to do here will you work with me please right yeah 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 i wasn't sure if i was making it too difficult to get through the polite diplomatic language because that conversation went longer than I thought it was going to when I started writing it, and then it right. just kept going. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I I liked that under those circumstances, though, 
because um, especially since, I mean, we've, we saw a significant amount of tension between the dwarves and Karanthir before, right? And so I mean, we've had three-ish, three to four elf, uh, like elf dwarf interactions, right? We've seen the dwarves with Karanthir, right? And that's rocky, right? We've seen um, what our friend Norn, was it Norn? Yeah, Norn with uh, the Sindar, right? And that went really well. Um, we have Aeol, and that's its own thing, right? Um, and we had the Petty Dwarves, uh, which was, you know, a little bit uncertain. And Finrod was tangentially involved, but not directly involved. Uh, well, semi-directly. Anyway, but he was... It, it was that wasn't exactly a Finrod story as much as it was some other things. Um, so, but in any case, like if we had if that hadn't gone long, Marie, like if it had, if that if it had just been like, you know, swift and cheerful on both sides, it would have been strange. Like I like the fact that it's clear. On the one hand, it's clear that they are allies. They do trade with each other. They are willing to work together. This is a constructive relationship that they have, and that Finrod is deliberately maintaining this constructive relationship. All those things I thought were really good and really important to convey. And yet again, like, but it's work, man. Like, it's it doesn't happen automatically. Like, this is this is uh, this is something you've got to really you've got to really work at. And I think that that's really important. Yeah, I agree. Evan says that uh, he loves the polite tension that happens in that scene. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, dwarves and elves working together and staying in good relations is non-trivial, right? And I thought that that it was important that that should be conveyed. And what's more, again, given what we know the future to be of the Nuglamir, right? You know, uh, it was important to have that framework of tension from the beginning um, and to establish that, like, how did this collaboration, right, between Noldor gems from Valinor and dwarf craftsmanship, how, like, how did that even become a thing, right? Um, So I just... I, it all came together so beautifully, uh, both to sort of like as even a justification for the existence of the Nauglamir, um, because it's not even in the book, it's not trivial. That is. I'm not I, In the I mean, we don't get much of a story. He just gets a reference, right? Like a like a sentence we get about the forging of the of the uh, of the the Nauglamir. But um but even there, I'm con- it's one of those points in the Silmarillion where I'm conscious of the suspension of disbelief. Wh- why did dwarves make this? Why did Finrod have them make it exactly? Why didn't he do it himself? Why did the Noldor not do this themselves? Like, is that why are they why are they subletting this out? You know, to dwarves like that. I mean, okay, like I, I accept it, right? I'm willing to accept it. But the reasons for that are not. He doesn't give reasons for it, right? And so therefore, I'm just like making stuff up in my head, right? Trying to figure out why that would be. Um, Not only, you know, does this uh, plotline give reasons, I found those reasons totally compelling. Um, And Finrod came out of this looking awesome. I mean, Mm -hmm. just awesome. His relationship with his own gems, right? 
even the way that that got can that you guys were connecting that to um uh, to his girlfriend right loved that you know just the the way in which um not to mention like i was obviously very much aware of the ways in which you were using the scene with his gems as a way to set up the song battle with Sauron and the scenes from the song battle with Sauron. Like I, I, I could, I, I could feel it coming, right? His memories of Valinor and how he's going to be drawing on those same memories of Valinor and the same images he's describing to Zirak here uh, in his song battle with Sauron later. I'm like, this is just genius. That's just absolutely brilliant. The way that all came together. So, so good. This was just, um, uh, this was, and I'm pretty sure I'm remembering correctly. This one was new, right? This was not, this did not come out of our yeah. previous discussion. This was the most unexpected to me whole, like of all the, like the major sort of plot lines is the most unexpected to me. And the one that I like best, the one that I thought worked really, really bad. This was so good. So doing so many things, accomplishing so many things at once. Um, really, really elegant. And I mean, this is how we worked the Silmarils into the yes, first yes. episode of the season. Absolutely. And this is when Zarek finds out about Silmarils. Like, so this is, this is going to pay off for a while. Yeah. Hopefully. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, the uh, Xerox reaction to the Silmarils was really cool. Um, yeah. Yeah. Loved that. Yeah. Um, no, it was, it was um, that we were able to go there even to remind even to remind the viewers, because it's been a while since the Silmarils have been an issue, like a, an explicit issue. I mean, how long has it been? Did it happen in season five? Does anybody in season five really? I mean, I'm not I, I'm not saying they're never mentioned and we see them sometime. We see Morgoth and so we see the Silmarils. But um, but it's never really like a focal point of attention, really. In season five, not even much in season four. Like in season three, when Fanor's still alive and we're pursuing, right? Like we're more or less conscious of the Silmarils. But once we've settled down in Middle Earth in season four, I feel like the Silmarils really begin to fade into the background. Um, yeah, and the, the kinslaying yeah. was the more important aspect. Exactly. Of that. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and once Fanor is dead, the like bad justification of the kinslaying begins to pale, right? And the mere fact of the kinslaying becomes the big deal, right? Um, which is, again, which is perfectly appropriate, I think, right? Um, there's very, there's there's nobody really in the post-Feanor world who is saying, yeah, the kinslaying, that was unfortunate, but, you know, you got to do what you got to do to get the Silmarils back. Like, nobody's talking like that in the post-Feanor uh, uh, Middle Earth. So, anyway... I just this was all so remind even just as a as a mechanism to remind the readers of the existence of the Silmarils and their significance, like how people look at them and why people covet them and why this is a really big deal. Um, Obviously, that's going to be we're not only setting up episode four. Right. And the quest that Thingol is going to set them on. But as you say, so many other things moving forward, the uh, Nargothron storyline with Kelgorm and Kurafin, the um, uh, ultimately the Nagalamir's future. And uh, um, I mean, I am sure people will be remembering this scene very clearly when the Silmaril gets to be worked into the Nagalamir. Right. I mean, that's so good. So good. So um, anyway, this was just awesome. I just, I just, I just loved this. This was, uh, 
the only question that I had, and it wasn't a huge question, um, what's going on to the east of Nargothrond? Why couldn't they get home? The dragon? Dragon. The dragon. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Yeah. Which um, we still have not yet gotten around to 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 showing. We're we're working on it. Right. Um, right. Also, the scene where Mithras retakes the pass and is reestablishing the line there in the north that happens after these dwarves right. get home. Right. 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 So okay, when the pass was not retaken yet, there could be orc raiding parties going yeah, down into right. East Valerian. So yeah. it was, the whole place was chaotic. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So that makes sense. Because they wouldn't necessarily, the would the dwarves of Nagrod have to, they wouldn't have to actually pass by. Uh, they don't have to. Glaurung, I mean, yeah. Right. Um, yeah. But yeah. they, well, the dwarves of Belagost had been going that way because Caranthir more or less demanded it if they wanted to trade with the Noldor. Yeah. Right. 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 Okay. Anyway, but yeah, no, that, that makes, that makes, that makes sense. I was, it was the one thing I was like, why, why in that? And, but I was, it was, it was the timing, right? Cause I was already thinking about Mithros reestablishing things over there. Yes. So I was in my head, I was just thinking of the dragon as the big problem. And I'm like, I think they would have gotten further <laughs> before they ran into dragon rumors or something like that yeah. and could have gotten around it. Right. By just, Going to a different part of the mountains than uh, yeah. the part yeah. way up in the north by um, Hellhorn. But anyway, yeah, yeah. So, um, okay. That makes sense. Okay. Um, minor character appearances. Okay. So uh, we've got uh, Thingol. All right. So uh, we so showing Thingol and Melian operating in Doriath I thought was really interesting. Um I, I really liked the choice of like pretext for that scene, right? Of the like refugee Sindar returning, um, the whole attitude of Thingol in welcoming them back, right? Um, that, uh, you know, uh, oh, you know, welcome back to like the safe home of the Sindar with like just a, a hint of rebuke for having left in the first place. Right. I mean, there was it wasn't strong, but I, I, I detected a hint of, you know, do you really oughtn't to have left? Now, I, can we all agree now that you should have really stayed in the first place? Like it, 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 it wasn't strong. Like he didn't come off as a jerk, like high refugees. It's your own fault, isn't it? Like, it, you know, it, it, it wasn't as bad as that. But but I, I was detecting a hint. Right. Just a hint of like. I'm glad that you've come home to where the Sindar belong, right? Which is here in Doriath. So, which again, which seemed, which seemed to me quite, quite fitting. He seemed similarly, Thingol seemed, um, he came across to me as, again, not, not hugely, not inappropriately, but like faintly, slightly smug. Um, you know, like he's, it's He's not so like, dramatically magnanimous about yes, it, right? Yes, exactly. That's what gave that impression, right? That, um, uh, like, welcome back to Doriath, where everything's fine and no one has to worry about anything, unlike everywhere around us, which is in smoldering ruins right now, right? Um, how's that working out for those Noldor neighbors of ours, right? Well, come back to Thingol, you know, Thingol's place. Well, Melian's place, really. But anyway... Um, 
we're all fine here. Like, look how much better we're doing than all of our immediate neighbors, those kinslaying Noldor who are getting their comeuppance right now, right? I mean, like, the, again, he doesn't say any of that. Now, I'm, I'm obviously, I'm radically exaggerating the because I thought the element of that in his attitude and in his speeches was way within tolerance levels. Like, I, I think it would be, I think, thinking those things. Um, if Thingol... We we almost can't have Thingol showing any hint of like real compassion. Like oh, like everyone else is suffering. I feel horrible. Well, then why aren't you going out and helping? You get right. Like would be the obvious response. So like he has to feel like that's the only way he could be characterized, or he'd be doing something right. But given that mm. he is just maintaining the boundaries of Doriath, not even letting the Nolor in. Right, Nolor and refugees not welcome. In in Doriath, right, turning people away at the boundaries, as was obvious from the messengers of Mithros, right? Yeah. Um. Uh. So, 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 yeah. Like he, he, he. It's not possible to show him being more, um, sort of, f- you know, friendly and concerned and compassionate than he was, but right. like solicitous for the Sindar and and and, yeah, kind of smug. Anyway. I, I, so the choice of that scene of their welcoming in the refugees, I thought worked really, really well. And the contrast with Luthien, right? Luthien's humility, um, rather than being the like, hi, I am the magnanimous host, you know, that her father was doing, Luthien being like, I'm going to comfort your children, right? And, you know, help them to feel better in this awkward situation. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, uh, that was, I, I thought, really. Wonderful. And a great way, um, the segue to the flowers springing up by her feet was really cool. Like, I thought that the, I, the implication, um, right, in the contextual implication that it was almost like a thing she was doing to please the children, right? Mm. Uh, what, you know, again, not that it necessarily, but, but again, this, in context, it felt, it, it, it like partook of the spirit with which she was playing with the children, right? Mm. Um, and I thought that kind of uh, associating the flowers springing up around her with, you know, um, both innocence and kindness in the way in which it was in that context seemed to me very, very appropriate. And These a, a really children are entering that. fairy. Yeah. Like, yeah. it's, like, the even, even for elves, they are entering fairy. And yeah. there's been, there's been some talk about um, that there there are folks who feel that we've been avoiding the fairy tale elements of the story Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. and to some extent that is not entirely untrue there are things that we have to show on screen and people have to see them with their eyeballs right? right Right, and there are things that human eyes don't like. They're like, mm, that's not how things happen, right? There are a lot of things in fairy tales that are really hard to depict. Yes. I mean, there's a reason that Disney changes a whole bunch. There's several reasons, but yes. uh, some of the especially things, especially when they go live actions. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But we've, I'm here to assure people. This is still a fairy story. It's still a fairy story, and this one especially, right? This yes. is this is one yeah. of the core uh, yes. fairy story things. Yeah. The Lord of the Forest, the you know the the Elf Queen. Well, she's not an Elf Queen, but you know Mel- Melian is 
the the queen of her realm she's the one whose border you trespass when you enter doria yes Uh, and the dancing elf lady in the woods and the human interloper yeah yeah the whole thing absolutely um you've got like all of the core fairy tale uh fairy story uh tropes that here yeah no agreed agreed yeah this is this is not the place to be backing down from that that kind of element for sure um yeah, good. And um, Dairon's comparatively contented bachelor state, I thought, came across well. I, I like the tactful inquiry <laughs> from the unnamed Sindar um, of, uh, 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 you know, probing after their relationship status, right? Um, I thought that that very effectively conveyed the, the expectations, right? That, uh, that there is assumptions have been made right about uh, that the two of them would um but without um our bold choice deliberately to diffuse a love triangle um i thought worked very well rather than rather than inserting awkward love triangles where they really don't need to be uh, to go out of our way to eliminate a love triangle that actually is there uh, in the text, um, I thought I thought that that uh, the first steps of that bold venture went across pretty well. And can I just say, like, how double gutsy this move would be in a real show, right? Not only to go out of our way to remove a love triangle, but to replace a relationship premised in the original on some kind of like sexual tension like you know like it's explicitly a romantic relationship at least on one side right and to replace that with a friendship instead like that almost never happens <laughs> that almost never happens the the converse happens all the time Right. Let's take people who are friends and instead let's make them, you know, at least one of them romantic, romantically interested in the other, uh, because then people will believe in their relationship. Right. Believe that they're close and that they care about each other. And apparently if that's it's just it's one of my pet peeves about Hollywood is that they don't care about friendship or take it at all seriously. Um, uh, You know, men and women can never be friends uh, and all kinds of things. Right. Issues with that. Um, But um, so I love the way in which the story is flying against that with with Dairon. It's not going to, you know, completely avoid this because despite his assurances right now that he is content, doesn't mean he will remain content. Well, it's one thing to say, I'm fine if we don't get married. It's another thing to say, I'm, I welcome her marrying that guy. <laughs> right? Absolutely. Especially when that guy is that guy, right? I mean, so yeah, yeah, that's... Um, um, Yes. Yeah. No, totally understandable. Totally understandable. And that's, uh, but, but again, establishing that as the tone of their relationship. And, uh, I I thought that was, I thought that that worked really, really well. Um, I loved, so Kelgorm and Kurofin, the main question I was left with after the Kelgorm and Kurofin scene was how are Kelgorm and Kurofin ever going to recover their relationship with Mithras after this, after this season. Right. I mean, short, short answer is 
they're not. They're not. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's it's. I mean, holy cow! It's uh, so establish introducing them as not only failures, but irresponsible failures. Possibly, like mm-hmm. it's not just that they tried and failed. Mm-hmm. But the kind of failures who didn't really try and perhaps couldn't be bothered or whatever, right? I mean, um, like it's a bad, bad look from the very beginning. I oh, mean, yeah. Uh, yeah. So um, we are so ready for Kelgorm and Kurafin to be the villains, which I think is a great move on the whole. I mean, we don't have time to show, you know... Uh, to start with, like, quasi-heroic Kelgorm and Kurafin and show them falling into disgrace. There's just not screen time for that uh, in this season for them. Um, so, yeah. Now, establishing them as totally, I was going to say, in the doghouse, but given that we're talking about Huan, that's not really much of an insult now, is it? Um, anyway, but showing that they are very much uh, in in uh, the low esteem Mm. Uh, of their brother uh, from the start, questioning not only their actions, but their motives, um, you know, without totally being himself a jerk and calling them out, um, giving them this one job uh, in order, like explicitly in order to redeem, okay, not explicitly, implicitly in order to redeem themselves, right? Um, Which they are not only going to fail to do, but are going to... um, undo in a sense right right um it's yeah so no that was um Kelgorm and Kurafin are well positioned for where we want them to be of course we didn't we couldn't get anything like uh differentiation of their two characters so and we've gotten some of that in the past but uh, yeah um uh, I guess that was the one moment when Mythros kind of appeals to Kurafin showing that he thinks that Kurafin is the brains of the operation, right? That there's that one reference. Am I recalling that right, right Marie, that he... Um, Myther, it's clear, Mithros' question makes it clear that he assumes that Kurafin is the brains of the operation. Yeah, there's there's two parts of the scene that are differentiated, and one is when Mithros starts saying that they did something wrong, Kelogorm is immediately verbally defensive, like, right. oh, you know, we weren't trying to do this. So... Right. Kurafin stays silent for that. Right. He's not going to engage. He knows what Mytheris is saying. He's, he's not letting himself be drawn in. So Mytheris does have to specifically ask him, hey, Kurafin, any ideas on how to retake a keep from a dragon? Right. <laughs> Even though Kelogorm's the one who fought the dragon before. Right. Kelogorm has encountered Glorong and interacted with him. Kurafin's never seen the dragon. And Mither still asked for his advice there. So, I, yeah, that was to differentiate yeah. which one exactly. is the strategic thinker here that Mithras yeah. might actually want advice from. While also showing Kurafin as being both kind of slippery, and, sort of slippery and slimy, right? Like, yeah. uh, I mean, because I mean, doesn't he kind of say, essentially, I have plausible deniability on the dragon front? Like, I can't, I can't how am I supposed to have come up with a plan to, you know, when I've never seen the dragon and whatever? Um, but um, anyway, yeah, so there's, um, yeah, I, I, I like, so I'm, I'm ready for Kelgorm and Kurafin. My only question there was, um, what do we see of Huan in this scene? Anything? 
he's there. He's just 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 establishing his presence, right? Yeah, I didn't um, do anything with him. Did you want to see something from him here at the well, beginning? Well, I, I, I'm just thinking. Again, we have so little time with him on on screen, right? I mean, total number of minutes for Kelogor and Kurofin, it's going to be relatively low, at least until the Baron's Leap episode, where they'll get more time. Um, and of course, they'll have a few big scenes, obviously, in the usurpation of of, of Nargothrond's scene, um, but. I'm just trying to think, what do we need to establish with Huon and Kelligorm's relationship at the start? It's it's tricky because you do want to avoid too much anthropomorphizing him um, it's true. at this point. Um, but just showing that he's still loyal to Kelligorm, mm-hmm. you know, um, he... He may like he deliberately goes out of his way to save Kilgorm's life in the in the previous episode or the episode immediately previous the previous episode right, right um the penultimate episode of of season five um but he can't really talk, he's not going to talk right. in the scene so at best he can give Kilgorm kind of like Right. Now I'm thinking like at the most it would be some kind of look or other, right? Mm. Um but I'm mostly thinking about like body language. Like mm. is Huan happy right now? Is he uncomfortable already? Where is Huan in his attitude towards Kelgorm? Like is he is he beginning to like rethink his life choices he's a yet? A little embarrassed for him maybe. Right, something like that. I mean, he's he's got to be aware of the fact that Kelgorm is doing the opposite of covering himself with glory recently. Right. Yes. Like but he yeah. hasn't done anything bad, really. In a while. Right. Yeah. In a while. I mean, that's the case thing, yeah. <laughs> that's but, right. I mean, no. So the whole is, is Huan rethinking his life choices? No. No. Huan is still right. quite loyal to Kelogorm. And yeah, Kelogorm didn't pull this battle off very well. He's not exactly doing a great job here. But that, I mean, Huan was part of that battle too. So it reflects just as badly on himself. Like, he's not blaming Kelogorm for the loss the way Mithros is. If there's one Huan thing I would want to see then, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be much, and people could miss it, right? It would be the scene where Kelogorm gets defensive, right? Um Carinthir is smart enough to process this and say nothing in order to not uh make himself sound bad, right? Kelligorm gets defensive and therefore kind of exposes himself in that scene, right? Huan should just look kind of ashamed of himself. Like, he should be the only one of the three, right? He, like, a kind of, the kind of droopy tail dog look, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, he should be the only one of the three of them who looks ashamed of what it, like, like regretful of how things have turned out and what happened, right? Kelogorm is trying to defend himself. Kurafin is trying to maneuver around the situation, right? Um, Huan would be the only one showing honest shame of how things worked out, right? Yeah, sure. I can definitely insert that. Yeah, yeah. That's, yes. Just just a sight of droopy tail Huan, I think, is all I would need. Uh, all I need. But but that that's enough to like the the thing that it would show, the seed that it would plant, right, would be that um, 
Huan's heart is in a very different place from Kelgorm's, right? He, it's the risk. The risk that I'm wanting to control is that it's very easy to assume that the bad guy's dog is a bad guy, right? That if Kelgorm has bad motivations, then his dog is somehow infected by these motivations. That his dog is complicit in his, in Kelgorm's bad choices and ill will, right? And to show that although Huan is loyal to Kelgorm, he is not, um, he does not share his, you know, view on life, right, um, would be, I think, an important seed to plant. Because then it shows that when he leaves Kelegorm, this is not an act of betrayal. It's not even like a conversion moment for Huan, right, where he, like, I'm going to stop running with the bad guys and, 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 and you know, I'm, I'm going to, like, you know, leave the street gang and, 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 and join the good guy. That's not what's happening with Huan at that moment. He's right? not General Hux? He's not General Hux, no. He's always been a good guy, Right. Um, he's always been a good guy, um, but he was subordinating his essentially subordinating his desire to do good for, to his loyalty to Caligorm. Right. I'm going to even though, you know. Yeah. Anyway, th- th- just to show that gap so that when he goes with Luthien, we don't want Huan to look like a traitor. Right. Um, or even to make it look like he's been, Luthien's not saving him, right? Um, Luthien's not um, uh, 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 not uh, converting him, like I said. Um, anyway, so uh, that's that that's that's the the Huan touch that I think would be cool to introduce. Last thing before we go um, on the Tolsirian stuff and the ghost fight. We talked about the ghost stuff a lot, and I would feel much better about the ghost fight after, um, with those changes, right? With this, once we've sucked out the eyeballs, I'll feel better about it. Um, the, that the ghosts are, um, so the ghosts are possessing people? At least in one case, yes. At least in one case, okay. Okay. So the the guy who's killing the other elves, but but thinks he's fighting the ghosts, is right. clearly his perception has been altered. So he's basically possessed by the ghost. Okay. Yes. There's a there's a story involving uh, involving the Justice League, where uh, Wonder Woman and Superman each find themselves fighting like this demonic creature. Right. And as they're fighting and fighting and fighting and, and like these creatures are just shockingly powerful. Right. And then uh, Wonder Woman catches a glimpse of herself fighting this creature in the mirror and sees that it's Superman. Right. right. You know, so right. it's, it's right. not entirely unlike that scenario. Right. Is it an illusion or is it? Is it actual because pos- the mechanics of the possession? This was one of the only questions that I had. That was one of the things that I was kind of wondering about. Um, I could imagine us going so far as to say that the spirits that are dominated by Sauron have themselves the power to dominate others, but that seems an additional step that we would need to somehow prepare for. I think yeah, it, it's mostly the altered perception thing. So we see through the guy's eyes where he he sees that he's fighting ghosts. And he's calling for help and all that. 
and then you see from the other people's eyes like why are all these dead bodies around here (laughs) so it's the oh okay you you didn't know what you were doing you didn't so what altered his perception i didn't Right. The, really yeah, we, clarify. Yeah, we didn't have to explain it, but like the the kind of the warping of apparent reality, the way in which it's yeah. it was almost like um like the some kind of like dream sequence near or something mm-hmm. like that that um or some kind of illusion, some kind of you know veil over his sight or whatever. Um. Uh, yeah, I mean that was I I thought that was really interesting. There were several ways in which um. So the several different mechanisms, essentially, that you uh, generated to show how the ghosts succeed in doing what they did. It's not just a, and we're going to make them very scared until they all run away uh, in terror thing. Um, there was, like, a little bit more to it than that. And even as, I forget who it was, was commenting much earlier on uh, in the evening about it was Philip, I think, about elves not being afraid yeah. of spirits, right? We did, in fact, start with that. Like they didn't when they first saw the spirits, their reaction was not ah ghosts, right? They they were like, what is this? Like, let us try yeah. to understand this, right, and figure out what's going on. Like they um they didn't merely panic uh like uh, uh they didn't merely panic like um you know humans might or whatever, um. But, um, yeah, by the way, loved. So I, I saw that you, in one sense, kind of toned down my uh, Anile Dracula reference, but I really kind of liked the Anile, the bat at the window Dracula reference. That was very Lucy Westenra. I appreciated that. Um, uh, so that was, uh, that was, that was fun. Um, one thing I was a little bit unclear about, though, the chest. The chest. I was a little unclear about the chest in the well. Um, on the one hand, the well with the chest, which I mean, seemed to be a preparation for the tub of evil, right? But I didn't quite get what was in the chest or like how, what, what, what that, that was. Okay. So we had to get the ghosts inside the tower somehow. And we wanted most of the scene to focus on what the ghosts do once they're already in the tower. Right. So we went back and forth several times on how to get them inside. And we, we went with the, or at least I guess I went with the option of most scene economy of like, how can we get them there fastest, which is everything happens off screen and you just get the final step of an aisle releasing the ghosts into the tower. So how did they get into, how did all the ghosts get shoved into a chest and then dumped in the river and then fished out of the well? Well, I don't know. Sauron's plot apparently involves some convoluted way to get the chest inside the tower so that Anal can release the ghosts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the, there wasn't, so like there wasn't time to do a scene, like an extra scene where he leaves Tolsirian, for example, and comes back with a chest, and nobody has any suspicions about this in any way, or right. you know, like they, they, it was the idea of little Bat Ferenguethel carrying the chest into the tower seemed to be a little ridiculous looking, <laughs> or and Bat Ferenguethel, yes, either. But anyway, the Bat carrying yeah. the chest probably wasn't where, where we wanted to go with that, yeah, and yeah. we wanted it to be clear that without Anile being complicit in it, the ghosts don't get in. 
Yeah. So there had no, to be agreed. some. Yeah, that clearly element. had to be something. So yeah. I'm thinking, all right, I'm mm-hmm. thinking we could simplify this somewhat. Mm-hmm. So, first of all, on the one hand, the mere question, how do the ghosts get in, doesn't seem like it need be hard, right? Unless we're operating under a ghosts can't cross running water framework, which would be totally justifiable, by the way, but mm. which, of course, is not established. And right. um, only the keenly folklore aware would. Say, I mean, I, I'm, I could I'm, I'm just like imagining the, um, uh, you know, the tweets uh, when the show drops like ghosts wouldn't cross running water like that. Everybody knows that. But still, seriously, like apart from that issue, like. They're like immaterial. Like, can't they right. can come in? So can't they come were, in? There's two two issues. One is the running water issue, which, as yeah. you say, we could just yeah. ignore if we wanted to. Uh, Tolkien kind of couldn't get it to work with the ring race the way he yeah. wanted to. Anyway, yeah, he kind of so gave like, up on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, the second issue, though, is that with a lot of vampire lore, you have to invite the invitation. Them in, yes, or yes. else they can't get in, right. and. With this Otherwise, tower, why this, do we need on Isle for it? <laughs> exactly, right, right. yeah, no, with no, this, yeah. So, the tower being built by elves and established by Finrod, Sauron can't just send his ghost army into that tower because the tower says no, right? Yeah, on whatever no, see, spiritual level you want to say. I like that. Like, when mm-hmm. Anil was he did the invitation, like, he invited mm-hmm. them in, right? That still mm-hmm. happened, right. But I don't think you need need the chest necessarily for. So he can just for, stand at the window and do that. Yeah, stand at the window or stand at the gate, right? I mean, he could even go to the gate, perhaps. Um, yeah, the gate's got to be opened for that to work. So he could open the gate, but then, like now he's opening up the gate, right? Like there's a whole thing there. Right. Yeah. Then it beca- right. Then it it makes it look more uh, more mundane. But it doesn't have to be at the gate then. Um, I say so. I I would be I would be in favor of um, ignoring the running water. Okay, um, so he can just call down into the well that all these ghosts start coming out of the well. I like that. No, or even what if it's mm, okay? Especially if he opens up, if like there's a wooden cover to it, and he opens up the wooden cover and and calls down into the well. What if it's not about the well at first? Because yeah. then still there's the question of. Why are they in the well? The ghosts. Yeah. How would well, they get in the well? Yeah. What if it's, well, it's what if what if it's the other way around? What if he goes up and set it down? I I know like having it involved with the well is like setting up the tub of evil later mm. on, and I get that. But what if instead the tub of evil is a reversal? Right. What if what if he goes up to the top of the tower? Like we show Anil standing at the top of the tower, right? So you can see like all of the Isle of Talsirian, and he's issuing the invitation. They can like the ghosts can fly right like they don't need to they don't need a land access they don't actually need a physical gate opened in order to get in right so if we if we show him standing like at the top of the tower right um that way we could even show like the guards or whoever like could you we could see on walking by right like you know him walking by in this sort of trance up to the top and then he issues his invitation and he welcomes them all in um, and then we see them come right then we cut to the guards right downstairs and we could even show like during the scene we could even get like Anil, like walking down. Like I, 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 I know we still need him for later on, right? So, yeah. 
Uh, but right. we could, he could just be like walking down through the chaos and everything and nobody really notices him until he's discovered, you know, at the end uh, by Meryl, as happens um, at the end of the scene. Anyway, like, that would simplify things, right? If just the invitation is all that's needed, then mm-hmm. we don't have to worry about the mechanics of like how the ghosts get anywhere. They're sure. there. They just need to be invited in. Like that's the sort of the final step. And um, and he and he could do. He could do that invitation. So I think, and then it might also, because one of the other effects, the other thing, Nick, that made me think about the top of the tower, the overall flow of action is kind of top down. The guards are kind of up in the tower to begin with, right? On patrol. Or were they outside on the ground on patrol? I didn't get that. Oh, hang on. Yeah. They were sitting in the hall, um, like, just hanging out. The first two guards we see, first two and guards. then they go out to the wall to see what's going on when they hear something. Okay. So it, okay. yeah, but I could, I can rearrange it so that there's a, a motion that makes sense. A motion. We start at and, the top, and the ghost. We start at the top, and then at the end, the down. action ends at the gates, right? With the right. when when, yeah. when the wolves come in and Sauron enters, right? So right. that, right. Um, yeah. I mean, it's what I kind of like about that is that the tower is taken in reverse order. Right, like the gates fall last, and that's a little bit boss, actually. Right, that the very last thing that happens is that the gates are forced. Right, um, and uh, anyway, just the, the the way in which it's all inverted um, is uh, it w- would be kind of fun, I think. But anyway, um, that was that was all I think the, the primary things that I had about, so I had questions about the mechanics of that, but again, I think if we simplify the mechanics, I think that that'll, I think that that'll okay. work. Um, but, um, good. And Oh, Gilgalad being the ambassador to Doriath, right. Um, don't be too much like grandpa. I thought that was all that was, that was kind of, you know, or learn from grandpa's struggles, uh, <laughs> with this challenge. Um, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I like that. I like that. Okay. Um, we are running late, but we got through, I think, all that we wanted to discuss. Well, here's the summary, but that's okay. We're good. Um, our next session will be uh, in a few weeks' time. So next week is Mythmoot. I'm not going to be available the week after, so it's going to be three weeks from tonight that we're going to do our next session on the 7th of July at 10 p.m. Eastern time. So there's going to be a little bit of a break, and we're going to be we're going to be thinking more about magic. We talked some about necromancy here, but we need to th- continue this discussion thinking about how we represent magic. We've been kind of in some ways almost avoiding that question Um all the way through the film film project uh, to some extent. Uh, and we, we just need, this is a season in which we really need to work out exactly how do we want to depict and represent and deal with magic in Tolkien's world. It's kind of a big question in general. So we're going to talk about that next time, next time on July 7th. Um, the next script discussion, which will be a discussion of The Frame, episodes one through five, will be on Friday, July 15th. So it'll be the week after that um, at 8 p.m. Eastern time. Um, so uh, thanks very much, everybody, for joining us. Uh, and we uh, look forward to continuing moving forward towards episode two and everything as we as we go. Strong beginning to the season, I think, here with episode one. Thanks again, everybody. Thanks, Maria and Nick, for joining me tonight. And Maria, awesome work on this script. That was fantastic. Thank you. Awesome. So I will say, as always, thanks for listening and Godspeed. <laughs>